Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. What's that? All right. Now we're doing it for real this time. All right. Hey, everybody. Stand by one. Hey everybody and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, today we have uh, Kyle Gouge McAlpin. Uh, he is a C-17 pilot. He went to uh, pilot training advanced, flew C-17, spent a little time teaching T-6s with uh, Slayer, which we met him on the uh, Debt 24 podcast. And uh, now he is flying C-17s and working at the MIT AI Accelerator. Uh, and so we're going to hear all about that uh, from him. So uh, Gouge, thank you for being here. Tell us about yourself. Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so like I said, uh, pilot training at Columbus. I went to, did uh, C-17s at Travis. Uh, and then I went over to, called the Great Purge, so changed the crew ratio in the C-17. And I uh, got hit with that, went over to Vance T-6s. Uh, started up some of the spark cell action there with a couple of the folks. So Slayer was one of them. Uh, Trigger Jordan, I think he's over at Morpheus now. And then uh, based on some of the things we're doing there, I got picked up uh, to help start this uh, MIT AI accelerator thing uh, out in Boston. I fly C-17 still on the side here with McGuire, so that's where I'm at the Air Force Inns here at McGuire. Hopefully the internet holds up, and uh, that's that's the basic background. Nice. The, uh, well, that's right, because you told us before that you went to Columbus, because uh, both Bender and I were Columbus guys. He was a fape there while I went through. And uh, so the C-17 purge, you said, I don't know, maybe I've learned this and forgot it, but what, what was this all about? Oh, yeah, we just we just changed our crew ratio in the community. It's so, like the ratio of pilots to jets. And it was like just one change, and it, uh, it changed how many pilots we were authorized to have. And so it was just like one assignment cycle where they took like a third of our squadron and PCS all of them out. So it's like a, a slaughter. <laughs> it's wild. So, uh, so, and, and Bender and I, we've, we've only done kind of the fighter thing. So the way it works there is like 18 PAA or 24 PAA, which it's like, you're normally putting up like eight or 10 or 12 jets, uh, at a time with those kind of numbers. So what did, what was that number for the kind of, I don't know if it's PAA as well or, or what was it? And then what did it change to and why? Yeah, I don't remember the exact number. I think it went from either three and a half to three or three to two and a half. And basically, we have like 12-ish jets at a base. And so um, that's typically, what, 12 times three-ish. Um, so 36 crews authorized for the C-17s, so those two pilots and a loadmaster. I got you. So, I mean, and that's, so that's pretty much saying like you could theoretically, if if you needed to, send every jet augmented crew and just go and every jet that can fly takes off not i don't know if that's part of the doc statement but is that something they think about that's a good question i I don't actually know i've never been at headquarters i have no idea how that calculation is made Uh, especially at the time i was just a co-pilot so i was just kind of subject to the uh kind of at the end of the whip so 
Well, and that's one thing we haven't really had in the podcast. And Bamer, uh, Bender, maybe you have uh, questions about this as well. Uh, but what's the lifestyle like for uh, we have we have some UPT hopeful stuff like that. What's the lifestyle in the C seventeen world like? Yeah, this is a question I get a lot. It's a uh... I always try to like shy away from it or, or couch it with a ton of nuance because it's really hard to say. And I really worry about like telling someone like this happened to me getting the C17 community. Some people would tell me having, they had been out like maybe three years prior to teaching me and back a couple of years prior to me going through pilot training, it was this crazy model where you would TDY out to Ramstein for like three weeks and you just sit in Ramstein waiting for a mission, basically waiting for a jet and you would get your mission and then you would you would go off and you would really have no idea when you were going to get a mission or if you were going to get a mission. Some some people would just sit in the Ramstein uh, Hotel, the KMCC there, for like three weeks and not, not get a mission and then just go home. But you were still gone, so you're still away from home and you're just sitting in the KMCC for three weeks at a time. So it's really unpredictable um, and a ton of traveling, even though you weren't necessarily doing that much flying because you would just, you know, maybe like gray tail or, or fly commercial out to Ramstein. Um, so you're always gone, even though you may be, you know, maybe flying a little, maybe flying a lot. So now we've moved to the, you kind of take your, your own jet from home station and fly a mission with it model. And now our, our workload is really dependent on what's going on in the world. So the C-17s do everything. Um, I, I tell people all the time, like we fly anything and everything that will fit in the C-17, which is like you can, you can roll up a, a, a semi-truck into the back of the jet, just drive a semi-truck straight up into the back of the jet, which we do often. Um, you can you can put military working dolphins in there. I think the C-17 was used to retire Free Willy, the whale, and I think we flew that that whale to, nice. to Greenland and retired the whale. Uh, we carry all sorts of crazy stuff. Anything you could fit in the aircraft, we carry like nuclear weapons, all, all sorts of crazy stuff. So uh, it's really hard to say what the workload is going to be at any given time. So I try to tell people like like you can't really pick based on a workload in the C-17. It, it's really just depends on what's going on in the world. We do a lot of presidential support stuff. So if the president happens to be, or, or vice president happens to be traveling a lot, then we end up uh, flying a lot. Uh, if there's a, happens to be a lull, seems like there's never lulls, but if there happens to be a lull, then we're not flying that much. Um, but the variety of missions is, is really, really cool. And you can kind of get into like any mission you want in the C-17, which is super cool. We can talk about some of the, some of the cool mission sets we do. Well, and that's one thing I was wondering about and Bender, you know, speak up if you do have a question, but one, uh, I know when Bender and I would travel, uh, cause we traveled a lot when our time in Japan, you know, we'd be like, come on C-17, come on C-17. And then a C-130 would land and be like, Oh shoot, you know, and, and no offense to the C-130, but the, the, the downside of the C-130 is it just doesn't carry as much. And, uh, and I don't think it flies as fast or as far. Uh, so there's just like a lot of it becomes much more complicated when you're like, we have one C-130 doing like three trips or one C-17. And uh, so, yeah, I, I flew on, uh, what, at least from the fighter side, it's called the like the Estabert. So when you're moving jets around the world, you'll throw maintenance and a couple extra pilots and a couple extra parts and motors and stuff like that into a C-17. It just kind of follows the jets, which... Uh, it's not the most comfortable place to sleep, at least in the back. Uh, but it's not a terrible, terrible spot, you know, just hanging out back there and, and kind of cruising around the world uh, that way. How does the C-17s of Travis, so obviously on the West Coast, and then Charleston is out on the East Coast. And I think those are the two kind of heavy hitters, right? Like McCord and McGuire and stuff are the other ones. Yes. Uh, what, what, does it vary depend, depending on 
base or East Coast, West Coast on what kind of jobs uh, you're doing and like low altitude drops, stuff like that? Yeah, a little bit. So, so our two big bases are uh, McCord and Charleston. Those are two we call mega bases. We used to have four squadrons at each. Now we have three squadrons at each for whatever reason. That's just part of the crew ratio change. Um, so those are our two mega bases. Every other squad, every other base has one squadron. So we call them single squadron bases. Um, so those are yeah, uh, Travis, McGuire, Dover, Hickam. Uh, I miss one. I'm sure. And there's a bunch of uh, a couple more guard and reserve bases kind of floating around there. And then we also have a NATO presence. Uh, so NATO owns three C-17s that are stationed at Papa Hungary. But yeah, the, the mission sets are very different. So only about 25% of the crew force does airdrop. Uh, so the airdrop is primarily at McCord and Charleston. And then it's done a little bit at Hickam and uh, maybe a little bit a little bit otherwise kind of here and there. A little bit Altus. Altus is our FTU. Uh, but then, so like McCord has some specialized mission. They have deep freeze where they fly to Antarctica. They resupply McMurdo Station. Uh, they call that Operation Deep Freeze. And basically, you land a C-17 on an ice runway uh, in Antarctica and resupply the research station there, which is super cool, uh, super challenging weather often and a challenging operation. Uh, but then there's, yeah, we also have, so in addition to this, there's air land, which is like people who don't do airdrop. Uh, then there's airdrop. And then there's uh, Special Operations Low Level, everyone calls them Soul 2 and they have sort of a specialized mission set with doing, um, they do like low-level air refueling and AMP-4 landings, AMP-4 lighting landings, which is like completely blacked out assault landings, so no, no infrared lights or any lights at all. Yeah, I've heard I've heard the C seventeen can can move. Bender and I actually talked about previously. We were able to uh, uh, at different times, but I was able to get a uh, chance to fight a C seventeen. They wanted to do like defense against a fighter, but they wanted to legitimately be at like I don't know five hundred feet, three hundred feet above the water. And I was like, no, like I I can't do that. Like you know, so so we had to we had to simulate the ground uh, because I would you know we all the fighter air speeds get, you know, are faster. It seems than the C-17. They were like, Oh no, we'll be at like a hundred and some knots. And I was like, I won't because I'll fall out of the sky. Uh, Bender, you got any uh, C-17 questions? Yeah. So I was going to ask, uh, well, Vader mostly asked, but so you said you were at Travis initially. Did you do Charleston after Travis or just Travis? No. So I went from Travis. I went to advanced teaching T-6s. Yeah. That was okay. my next cool. space. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, as far as Travis goes, did you, um, I know you would have spent some time in PACF, but is that mostly, so PACF, do they own any C-17s other than maybe Hickam's or how does that work with AMC? Do they divide up mobility assets like that? How's that, how's that set up? Yeah. AMC is super interesting. Um, I don't know to what extent other commands do this. It's, it's been led to believe AMC is pretty unique in not giving up C-17s. They don't chop C-17s at all. So they keep all their C-17s. Um, the only, they don't even chop deployed C-17s, so we have our deployed bases in Qatar LEDed, uh, and they don't chop those C-17s either, so they're not given to CENTCOM. They're still retained by AMC. They just stand up like a separate office called Theater Direct Delivery, TDD, which sort of like manages the, the deployed C-17s under TACC, which is Tanker Airlift Command and Control. I think the acronym wrong, the 618th AOC. So... Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting model. They And the idea is kind of what you're talking about with like C-130. Like it takes C-130 three legs to get somewhere and it takes us one leg. If not, you know, like we can get anywhere on Earth pretty much in one leg if we air refuel. 
So they call in, in AMC, CF-17s are called strategic airlift, which means we can take a unit all the way across the earth and airdrop them into wherever they need to go in one leg, like one duty day, basically one day, whereas C-130s that might take like three or four days to get all the way around the globe. So they call, C-130s are like tactical airlift, they say, you know, they just don't go very far. So they kind of stay intra-theater. That's cool. And then, sorry, one more question, Vader. As far as joint, how, how much are you airlifting army units and marines and stuff like that? Do you do a lot of joint type operations or is it mostly Air Force customers? Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty significantly joint. Uh, it's the, the customers are, are all over the place. We sometimes we carry, we do a lot of even combined stuff. So we'll carry a lot of uh, a lot of the missions that, that LUD or I did when I was at LUD deployed was we would go get like Mongolian army soldiers and bring them into Afghanistan, for example. So yeah, we do all the joint stuff. We do a lot of combined like international stuff, um, anything and everything. Yeah. What's the yeah, biggest, uh... Uh, what's the biggest weakness as far as the administrative of AMC? So like, for instance, Vader and I are interested in like the mission planning part of, uh, the CAF, right? Like it's pretty antiquated. It's all like Excel and PowerPoint and, I know AOS movements feel like they're incredibly antiquated. Like, why do we have 35 sheets of paper per packet that, you know? So what what's AMC like? Is it pretty, like, a well-oiled technology machine, or is it, like, what are we doing here in 1985? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you know the answer to that. But, yeah, yeah, we're in the same boat. Our uh, our mission planning is, is pretty painful. So so for us, all of our missions, sort of like like commercial airline dispatch, all of our missions, most of our missions are centrally managed by TACC, which is the 618th AOC. And a lot of their stuff is, is pretty old and antiquated. And um, we travel to weird places too, like very, very austere environments where there's no cell service, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no anything. So um, it could be a challenge to be centrally managed by an organization that you can't even call or text, you know. So there's there's a lot of challenges there. And then um, we're finally sort of getting over that with some, some stuff like Mattermost, which is like a, uh, aisle for like a Kui chat app. You can, you can get on your phone, you can receive, we call it your flight package, which is like, uh, maybe a hundred pages of, of your pre-flight materials, your flight plan and, and the weather briefing and, and all the stuff you need to go fly your diplomatic clearances and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think that was, so Kabul was a big stress test of TACC, I think, to be honest. And, uh, there are a lot of really uncomfortable things I think we, we recognized as, as part of that, which was we had got so used to just doing the same thing uh, when we were in the desert, Iraq and Afghanistan primarily, and just these kind of like very predictable ops that, that when we surged into Kabul, we just weren't ready for it. And uh, it really fell onto the aircraft, like individual aircraft commanders to just make it happen. There was the support was, was uh, sometimes lacking. Which it's, it's kind of unfortunate that, you know, you would think that an aircraft commander and, you know, end operators would be used to flexing that muscle, but because it's not so much the centralized control, decentralized execution, you know, it's, it's a surprise when it's like, Hey, just make it happen. And you're like, Oh, okay. Like I, I finally do what we actually say we do. That's pretty wild. Yeah. It's unfortunate the circumstances and where, where it happened. The, uh, so when, when you're, uh, Flying the C seventeen. I mean, what's that? What's that lifestyle like when you're going on a trip? Is that like a couple weeks long, or is that a couple days long? I, I assume it varies, but and you're sticking with the same crew. Yeah, yeah. That's um. So kind of the model is C 17s so I'd say like the standard mission. There's a lot of weird missions when we do C seventeen. 
air quotes there, the standard mission is uh, is basically wherever you are, you would go somewhere in the U.S. and pick up maybe like an army unit, marine unit, maybe a SEAL unit or something like that, and you would bring them somewhere, whether that's like Africa or Iraq and Afghanistan, where we were doing a lot of that stuff, Syria maybe, these days probably like Poland, um, just bring them somewhere and then come home. And so that entire profile might take three duty days, which if you're flying 24-hour duty days, is like five calendar days, you know, so you three, sleep three times in five days, which is kind of wild. Um, but that's kind of like the standard mission profile, and that takes, you know, typically five calendar days. Um, but then you can also do, so for presidential support missions, a lot of times you're just doing like three weeks. So they, they don't, they don't want to say how long, how long, how, when they can get you back, so they just uh, kind of tell you, like, expect to be out for three weeks. So there's missions like that where... Um, we do a lot of staging, for example, so you might like go out to Guam and sit in Guam for three weeks, just kind of waiting, waiting for a mission to come through or, or for a tasking to come down. It's kind of like the stage model. It's kind of like discrete missions and there's stages and, and a few other types of things we do. So like Operation Deep Freeze, when we go down and resupply uh, McMurdo Station, That's they do a stage out of Christchurch, New Zealand, actually, which is pretty cool. So you sit in Christchurch for a few weeks. That's cool. When that's, is that, does that mean like when you come back, it kind of slows down? Cause again, you're like, you're gone, you're gone, gone. So then when you come back, can you kind of chill out a little bit? So you're not like working 10 hour days, 12 hour days when you get back to base. That would be the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Technically we get uh, post-mission crew rest. I don't, do fighter guys have post-mission crew rest? I don't know if that's a thing. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think I've, if I've had it, I don't know what it is. Yeah, so, so basically for every, I think it's for every hour we're off station, uh, for every three hours we're off station, we get one hour back. I sound like an idiot if that's wrong. Um, <laughs> don't worry, we say wrong things all the <laughs> yeah. time. <laughs> say everything wrong. Then no one trusts me. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so basically like for however long you're out, you, you get some amount of time back. And so for a standard mission, you might get like a day or two off. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that... that uh, will arrive on like a weekend and so the day that the day that you get off to like recuperate is a saturday which you theoretically should have gotten off anyways and uh, we often don't get holidays and weekends off anyways so so uh yeah it's, it can be pretty, it's pretty painful yeah i think ideally we would uh we would get time off uh but i think in practice that doesn't always happen kind of depends on your job like what your side job is but when well, i think that's one thing that in a fighter squadron because scheduling and the DO and the squadron is trying to optimize all the iron that they can fly, uh, for training, you know, and they, your schedule is sometimes worse and sometimes better, but you think real world movements, real world stuff, like you're, you're trying to optimize all that stuff. So it's, it's understandable why people may not get as much downtime as they probably deserve, uh, because of the real world requirements. Bender, any uh, C-17 parting shots before we move into uh, AI? Uh, we'll just keep that open for future C-17 questions if I, I, like if that. I think of them, yeah. So yeah. always open. It's <laughs> good. Boom. Yeah. Uh, so now uh, Gouge is at the uh, M- MIT AI Accelerator. Uh, so uh, kind of talk about how that got created and then, and then what that means, uh, not only at MIT, but for the military in general. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of timeline is is basically um, in the middle of 2019, the vice chief of staff of the Air Force and his staff came to MIT and 
we're kind of looking at the defense innovation ecosystem and said, if we're really going to get after AI, then we need to be partnering with universities because that's where a lot of the, the most important, really the most important AI research is happening, AI innovation. And so uh, they, they jointly created this, this program at MIT, um, basically a partnership between MIT and the Air Force. Where we give MIT money to do fundamental research in AI. And then we also give them active duty personnel that can kind of represent the Air Force mission sets uh, to, the, to the researchers. And so uh, basically one January 2020 was the start of the AI accelerator. Uh, we have this partnership called a cooperative agreement. Uh, where, where MIT does the research for us, and then we, we give them, uh, we pay for the research, and we also give them active duty folks. So I'm a pilot, we have cyber operators, uh, intelligence, weather, um, 62, so engineers, acquisitions. Uh, we got we get a, a really broad spectrum, representative spectrum of the, the Air Force. We have officers enlisted um, to represent sort of like the Air Force mission sets to the MIT folks that are doing the research, and then so MIT basically does the basic research on, on the one hand, which is which is um, very fundamental. So it's not necessarily you'd look at it and it's like uh, academic research papers, maybe not necessarily super applicable to like directly to the Air Force mission. But then MIT Lincoln Laboratory, which is uh, a federally funded research and development center, so kind of similar to a national lab if you've heard of that, they can take that stuff and actually use the, the technology or the research that MIT is doing to turn that into a prototype for something that the actual Air Force uh, end users can, can use or try out. And so that's kind of the model, the entire, all the way through that kind of pipeline, the us, the, the permanent party airmen are kind of guiding and, and uh, providing the Air Force perspective. That's kind of the high level model. When there was there was a period of time talking to uh, Paco Benitez from the Merge newsletter and the Merge uh, podcast, uh, he's smart dude, and he he said there was a period of time a long time ago where where the the DoD the government spending was kind of the place for the you know leading edge most advanced like most fun exciting tech, uh, but we're we're not the biggest checkbook anymore. We're not the biggest organization. We're not the most advanced one. So, so this is kind of leveraging today. It's Silicon Valley and it's, and it's MIT, it's places like that, Purdue that are generating these ideas, generating this tech. So now we're going to leverage that to still help us gain uh, the benefit of that technology. Is that pretty much? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of what I was going to throw in next was the way we think about it is kind of like the, the, we used to have a really, really tight relationship with with academia pre-Vietnam. I think that kind of atrophied during Vietnam, a little bit of tension there, but we're really trying to build back the relationship that we had. Academia is, I think industry and academia are really the, the two great strengths of, of the United States. And uh, there's been a little bit of tension, I don't know if you heard in the news, like the, the Project Maven stuff that happened where oh, no, Google is working on this on this project called, called Project Maven. And uh, some of the folks at at Google that were working on Project Maven were alleged to have uh, disagreed for on disagreed. They didn't want to work basically on on like a defense project, um, and it, it caused this big firestorm in the news that that Google didn't want to work with the DoD, and it was this big backlash. And I think realistically, what happened is there were a few folks at Google that were Chinese citizens that, that didn't want to work on United States government defense research and everyone else was pretty happy and pretty excited to be yeah. doing things that were that uh, made the DOD better. 
and it got blown up, blown up into this huge narrative and created a bunch of skepticism. And, and so it's really cool for us to be here in person and to just show our faces and like we are not crazy baby killers, you know, or just normal people uh, providing hopefully a valuable service to, to society. And we don't want Arnold Schwarzenegger to go around killing people as a super, superhuman, you know, uh, so any more than you do. So like we are here with the same intentions. We don't want killer robots. We don't, uh, we don't want any of this to get out of hand either. So when you have a uh, technical background, so for people listening to the podcast that are kind of interested in, you know, maybe the MIT accelerator, one of the other uh, programs. So you have a technical background that you're kind of leveraging and other people in the organization do the same. Yeah, that's right. So uh, all of us have some sort of technical background, I'd say, kind of varying levels. Like some of us, there's a, a couple of our folks have PhDs in, in uh, AIML. Uh, my background is computer engineering, so my bachelor's in computer engineering. And then I did a lot of uh, tech stuff through like the innovation sphere, so starting the, the Spark Cell and working a lot in technology kind of acquisition in the, the advanced Spark Cell. So those two things together. But yeah, yeah, a lot of technical background. But I think it's important, like I try to tell people, it's not magic. Um, this is something you can learn about. You can just take a, a simple free course on, online. We, we offer some education. You can recommend some education. You can pick up. There's a, a couple of really good books now on, on AI ML you can pick up. Um, there's all sorts of ways to get smarter on it. It's not magic. Um, it, uh, it's totally accessible. And, and we all, if you're in the Air Force, you are uh, more than capable enough to, to learn about this stuff and use it in your day-to-day -day job. Well, and that's the, uh, I mean, that's one thing I didn't understand before I got into the military, how many things were there. Bender and I, when a long time ago, he was looking at the Olmstead, uh, which is kind of a language immersion. You get to move to a country and then there's, you know, the Stanford Ignite and then there's, you know, Shift uh, is putting on the uh, Defense Ventures Fellows uh, stuff there. We talked to a gentleman, we actually uh, just released the other day a uh, podcast um, of uh, Ian, who was a presidential scholar. All these things are what people in the military are able and eligible to do uh, just to make themselves smarter and, and really more marketable in the Air Force and out of the Air Force at some point. So I think there's there's a ton there. And so now if you could explain in generic terms or as in-depth as you'd like, uh, beginning to end, like how would something start in an a MIT AI accelerator and how would it kind of progress through those levels to end users utilizing that tech? Yeah, absolutely. So the disclaimer here is we haven't, we've only been around for three years now. We haven't fully figured out a lot of this stuff. So we're kind of building the airplane as, as we fall. Um, I think there's some, some really cool successes so far or really close to some, some big successes that we're, we're excited about. Um, but basically the model would be, so MIT does the, the basic research, the fundamental research. That's like the mathematical equations and like the, the, the math behind the machine learning algorithms, um, which is, which is a really exciting area of, of research. Uh, and then MIT Lincoln Laboratory, um, other national labs, uh, SBAR, sort of like contract partner companies could take in and operationalize that. So, so prototype and develop that technology towards an end user. And then, um, Eventually, we hope that that uh, and and the hard part, as it seems like it's a problem for everybody, is is getting into sustainment. So, how do we transition this to some sort of program office? Uh, but but basically, uh, one thing we're doing, for example, is magnetic navigation. That's a project I, I work on. Uh, so, basically, uh, a few years ago, they decided. There's some, some researchers at MIT that decided that we probably now have the mathematical sort of chops to 
do magnetic navigation on the edge, basically like on a laptop on a plane that's actively flying, and in real time calculate a magnetic navigation solution, which the theory was possible before, but it probably needed a supercomputer before. Um, so they developed sort of the math underpinning that idea, and then basically like Lincoln Laboratory takes that idea and actually applies it to a real airplane. And so that's that's what I'm doing uh, next week, going out to fly magnetic navigation on the on the C-17, and hopefully uh, collect the data we need to to train an ML model to actually navigate using Earth's magnetic field. So that's kind of the now uh, now sorry to interrupt, but because I'm a caveman, when I hear magnetic navigation, I think of a whiskey compass that we've had since you know the some of the first airplanes. So how does the current magnetic magnetic navigation, how is it different than just like a compass that is magnified or magnetized? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what it is. Honestly, like a compass compass <laughs> navigation is just a, a cruder version of of what we're doing. So you're using a compass to kind of point you in the direction of the field lines, which sort of indicates where magnetic north is. Uh, so if you think about what you're doing, if you heard of uh, like lines of magnetic declination or the isogonic lines, like the lines of equal magnetic variation. Okay. Yeah. That's so almost like have. latitude. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Obviously, <laughs> Bender and I have, but no, I imagine much like uh, latitudinal lines, like as you move relative either North or South of the equator or East or West of the prime meridian, you have a very deliberate line that, you know, you cross every time kind of thing like a, yeah. Yeah. And it, I'll let yeah, you yeah, no, that's, 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 that's <laughs> pretty, that's pretty close. And and all all there really are is like, so there there are lines of magnetic deviation. So it's basically like uh, the, you're looking at a picture of the Earth's magnetism, like the Earth's magnetic field, and that's that's what the isogonic lines, the magnetic declination charts are. Um, so if you're in on the east coast of the U.S., I think it's something like 16 east ish, right? And so if you're going to navigate using compass, you have to use that number to correct from magnetic north to true north. Well, those numbers are just sort of like crude indications of what the Earth's magnetic field is doing. In real life, the Earth's magnetic field is way more detailed than that. And it's so detailed, actually, that if you have a really high quality magnetic readings, like the strength of the magnetic field, which a compass doesn't tell you, but there are pretty simple sensors that probably have them on your phone, I would assume, uh, that could tell you that. If you have a really detailed reading and you have reading over time, then you could tell where you are based on a really high quality um, magnetometer reading and the idea would be for example like a really simple way to visualize this would be like if there's a big iron deposit in the earth's crust then you can kind of sense that and if you know if you have a map of where that iron deposit is in the earth's crust and you can sense it with a magnetometer then you kind of know where you are for example it's, it's more complicated than that but it's kind of the intuition so now as you're saying this is all happening on the edge so for everybody who hasn't who hasn't kind of heard about theory we've talked about it in previous podcasts but edge computing pretty much it's the end user so you're not connected to the cloud or gps or anything so this is your gps denied maybe you, de you have no connectivity outside of your airplane you are able to navigate and not just navigate but nav navigate accurately rather than just using like an internal navigation unit like an INU like most planes have or something? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it would complement an inertial navigation unit or inertial reference system. So just like GPS complements your inertial reference system, really it just like helps helps constrain your inertial reference, inertial navigation solution. Magnetic navigation do the exact same thing. So it, it would just be an alternate update source to your inertial reference system, just like GPS is one reference source. 
And so basically, I think in my mind, like we, sometimes we get a little fixated on some of the specific navigation technologies that update the inertial reference system. But the important thing is there's a few others, but the other ones have been around forever. Uh, celestial navigation, SPSR's visual navigation is like what we do with our eyeballs. And then you can point a camera at the ground to do the same thing, kind of automated automatically. And the other one is signals of opportunity. So like triangulating radio stations kind of thing, which a lot of jets do. Um, you really need all of those. I mean, we there is no reason that we should be subject to GPS denial. It just is not necessary. We have plenty of different diversified ways of navigating that can all update one one inertial reference system. So magnetic navigation is is one of those. It happens to have a lot of pros that that make it really useful. And for example, like Indo-Pacific, uh, for example, you don't need to see the ground. So you in the Pacific, you can't see the ground, right? Because it's water. So Visual navigation doesn't really help you, <laughs> and that's assuming that you're you're not even in a cloud, right? And also, if you're over land and you're in a cloud, you still can't see the ground, so that doesn't really help that much. If you're in a cloud, you can't see the stars, so celestial navigation is out, right? Um, and the last thing that's pretty cool about about magnetic navigation, it's really hard to jam for various reasons. So yeah, completely self-contained, internal to the aircraft, difficult to jam. Um, yeah, it, it has pretty uh, useful qualities for the Indo-Pacific. So, nice. How accurate uh, are we talking? Like, is it so for to update an INS or whatever for an aircraft? Uh, you know, like, are we talking weapons quality potentially? Like, instead of GPS guided bombs, you could potentially do a a bomb with an INS. Obviously, that updates with magnetic. Or does it take too long for that kind of a solution to? To be built. What are you laughing at, Vader? <laughs> Did I cross? That's some, a good question. Classification no. line. No, I just <laughs> think like, it's. Uh, uh, I think it's interesting because okay. you're like, hey, you know, like, what else can we yeah, guide or navigate from? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I, and I mean, really, like, your core point is like, is is the net, which I think you should definitely be asking. Everyone should be asking is like, is this operationally relevant? And that's exactly the question we're trying to to answer. Our initial suspicion, uh, I think we have good reason to believe the answer is yes. So, for example, there's a, a paper that uh, Major Aaron Canciani was the kind of one of the fathers of this in the Air Force. He published a paper. We did this on an F-16, and they got down. I mean, they're, they're still like using new and new and newer techniques to to navigate in post analysis, um, but some of the results show you know like 100 meter ish accuracy, sub 100 meter accuracy. For navigating on the F-16s, like an operational platform using magnetic navigation. And then, so how would this work? So now we have we have in uh, instrument landing system ILS, and we have uh, TACANs, and we have all these VORs and all these types of approaches. Uh, we have RNAV, like GPS types of approaches. So we're saying we're GPS denied. We can roll in and using the assumption or the, or the goal of this is we're going to keep a good enough system that it's going to keep us legal to get to a location and fly to points and land from those. Like that's kind of what we're expecting with it minus GPS. Yeah. For like operational use case, I think, I think that would be the way that I would explain it for an operational vignette. So I would say, like the Pacific, Indo-Pacific is really tough tyranny of, of distance. I mean, you have maybe eight hours between islands in the Pacific. If your GPS drifts, I don't know, whatever, even 100 meters, 1,000 meters, a couple thousand meters per hour, uh, 
that can be really problematic if you're in the weather and you don't actually see your destination airfield. Like actually trying to find the airfield, that could be really problematic, right? Or get on the ILS beam or get on instrument approach. Just like localizing that that island at all can be challenging. So if you can constrain your your navigation solution down to even sub like a thousand yards, thousand meters, uh, that can be really useful. In, I think in, in the Indo-Pacific fight, I have to kind of work through some of those operational vignettes based on on what we discover in some of this testing. We're really like a lot of stuff just no one knows. Yeah, I mean that's these are all these are all the questions we're trying to answer. Uh, trying to advance the the technology readiness level. I think we talked about before, but from like basically technology readiness level yeah. one is like basic idea to like nine is like flight proven on many many flights. You know, so we're just trying to advance from from a, a crude idea into into how is this operationally useful. And this is like you said, it's it's laptop size. Yeah, we think that we can do it on on a laptop that again has yet to be demonstrated, but we, we think it, it should be possible. That's pretty sick. So do you does your shop or who designs like the system process, like the test, you know, map, if that makes sense, like where are the milestones you're trying to achieve? Like what's the direction the research goes and then the prototyping and stuff. Is that you guys or is that MIT kind of the, the, does that or? Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's a really interesting joint partnership where MIT has, has their incentives basically are to do really hard research. So they want to do really hard things. And they've told us before on certain projects we propose, like that's not hard enough. We're not doing it. You know, that's, that's too simple. Have someone else do it, which is awesome. <laughs> you love to hear that. Um, so, so their sort of goals are to do something really hard and to do it at the basic, like fundamental research level. So, basic, like public things they can publish on. Um, and then our goals, obviously, are, are to operationalize something, to get something like useful to the actual users. Um, so, the way that the partnership works is kind of the pipeline I was talking about. So, like MIT to Lincoln Lab, and Lincoln Lab could do the prototyping to us. And then hopefully, so I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but um, hopefully at, at some point we. We get a company to pick it up, uh, so we, we recently kind of partnered with a SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Company. Um, one of our big successes that we talk about is this company, Sandbox AQ, kind of spun off. They participated in one of our open challenges and spun off to actually do this for the government. So as far as I know, maybe there's others, but they're the first one I've heard of that wants to do specifically magnetic navigation for the, for the U.S. government. So That's the cool thing about those cyber uh, companies. Two things. One, a lot of them are highly motivated, you know, smart people working on a lot of cool stuff. Uh, but then they're also, they're not these behemoth of companies that it's super difficult for them to kind of shift gears or work on new projects. So they're easily able to say like, oh yeah, we can try our hand at that, you know, cause again, it's, it's a small bet. It's a test. Worst case, it just doesn't work out and then you, you move on. But, uh, it's cool that that's happening. Uh, so what would you say, uh, Prior to the MIT AI Accelerator, was there something that similar to it, or is this like a something that didn't really exist after we kind of lost that academic connection? And then two, like going forward, where do you see the AI Accelerator kind of fitting in larger airspace-wise? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if there was if there was something similar in the in the recent past. I my kind of intuition is is no. There has been plenty of basic research. Basic and fundamental research are done, and the government funds a lot of it. Um, AFRL does it too, and they do a great job at it. Uh, I think the difference with what we're doing is we are putting the operator 
years in very close partnership with the people actually doing the research and development and prototyping. And I think that has produced some really special uh, sort of results, for example, in, in the magnetic navigation project, like steering projects towards things that are that are really useful to, to end users and to the Air Force. One thing, uh, one thing I've seen is, I mean, everybody's obviously interested in participating and helping out where they can. But like you said, you're you're gone for anywhere from a couple of days to three weeks, and then you get home and you're doing laundry and all that kind of stuff and trying to get ready for the the next thing. And then it's like, hey, also just help out this company when they have random questions. And it's like, yeah, you you want to, but the reality is that's not that's not very feasible. Uh, so I have heard. Uh, companies are always very nice when they say it because they don't want to, they don't want to be jerks because they're not jerks, but they, they could definitely use more end user feedback. So having dedicated end users who are always there, always prepare, prepared to provide input because I'm not an engineer. I don't develop these things and I never will be able to, uh, but they also don't have the insights that I do just having flown aircraft. So it is good that you have people who really understand the problem set providing that input and feedback to those engineers. So in that iterative process, it is, it is baked in rather than six month milestone. How did we do, you know, terribly, you know? So, so that's a, that's, that's good that you, that's, that's kind of a part of the process. Yeah. And I'd say maybe the other really cool point of this is, is MIT is an awesome, you know, world-class university, of course, um, but they're just one university, and, and we have a lot of these incredible universities in the United States, again, like one of our great national strengths. And so one of the things we're doing to sort of like multiply the the scale, hopefully, is each project. So we have I think 13 right now research projects. Each each project actually has to release an open challenge, so like an open data set. And this is, this is something that, uh, for those of us in the government, maybe that observe the government, is not, not a, a normal thing for the Department of Defense to do to publicly release our information. So that this contract basically funds... Uh, public data set being released for each project. And that, that data set basically serves, in, in my opinion, from my sort of like vantage point as, as a, the govy on, on the team, it serves to sort of steer academia and industry towards our problems, right? It's so like machine learning, everyone in machine learning wants to publish on like a unique and hard data set. And this is where machine learning has really gotten its historical advancements from. It's like these really big, um, open public data sets that people can kind of just crunch away on and try different things on and and compete on on solving or or uh, building solutions towards. Uh, so, so what we're doing is each project is releasing an Air Force relevant data set that academia really just completely public academia industry can download and and work on. So it's kind of cool that I think it's it's steering everyone in the direction of our problems, which is which is really powerful and like expanding scope and scale of what we're doing beyond just the 12 of us and the handful of researchers uh, that work with us at MIT. Well, and it advises them of the problems because we didn't understand the problems that we now know because we weren't in the, you know, in the inner circle or in the industry, but now we understand them. So being able to publish these things, letting people know who may already have a solution that we didn't even know it existed. Bender, what, uh, what question do you have? struggle bus you have you have a 12 man shop are they all operators who who makes up that that uh, accelerator lab yeah yeah so they're from all over the place so uh i'm c17 pilot we have uh, we had just pcs and an mq9 pilot um we have another c17 pilot eric robinson uh, we have an intelligence officer uh 
weather officer, we have acquisitions, um, cyber, what else? Uh, we have imagery analysts for, for a long time, did some really cool work on, on SAR to EO, uh, synthetic capture radar to electro-optical kind of automatic conversion. Uh, yeah, people from, from all over the Air Force. And mostly kind of... Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, they all computer... Because you said you were a computer engineering background. Are they the similar type backgrounds academically? Uh, mostly mostly kind of computer engineering, computer science um, at various levels. So some, for example, didn't get that for bachelor's, but did it for master's. Um, but yeah, yeah, kind of that, that general uh, field. Any uh, any geography majors? Maybe uh, poli sci majors? Not yet. I don't think so. <laughs> Asking <laughs> yeah. for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> we certainly could. I mean, it's it's more about like as, as you know with a lot of this stuff, it's more about like finding the right person and the cultural fit than it is you know, the person who's like really motivated to to work with you is going to figure out a way to to learn what they need to learn. So yeah, I think it's less about the specific background than it is about the interest and passion. And if, if someone were interested in, you know, either MIT, the AI Accelerator, or one of the other programs, like how, how did you find out about it? And then how would you recommend people kind of shop around and, and look for ways to kind of get involved and engage? Yeah, so I found out about it through, so I had started the um, Vance Spark Cell with uh, Trigger Jordan, that Morpheus uh, guy I was mentioning. And so I was in the AFWORK circles, and when they started this thing up, they were looking for people with sort of the, the AFWORKs kind of like innovation mindset, I think. And I just happened to be right place, right time. I think you wanted someone to represent the pilot community and someone with a little bit of a technical background, so a technical degree and innovation experience. So just, you know, right place, right time for the first time in my life. Uh, so so that's how I found it. Uh, but now we've, we've got a lot of ways to engage with us. So uh, the Phantom Fellowship is one, so we take about like 10 people every few months in and have them help sort of learn about our projects, learn about AI. We put them through some uh, sort of like CBT curated CBT training on AI. So like the Coursera style, like MOOC training on AI ML. And then they come out three times for three weeks out to the AI accelerator in, in Boston, Cambridge and uh, help do the research in the projects. So kind of learn what we're doing and what the MIT researchers are thinking about how they think. So that's one way, Phantom Fellowship. Another way is, is all of our research projects produce these open challenges. So if you're interested, you can just download one of our data sets and work on it. Some of them are like discrete challenges with a, with a stop start. You can just sign up and, and work through this challenge and you'll kind of get to engage with the uh, machine learning researchers that have worked on it, the operators that, that have helped build the, the project data set. Um, that's another way. Uh, Awesome. The uh, Bender, what uh, I got to run in a minute. So, what what one last question you got before we let uh, Gouge get out of here? What if we have good ideas? Well, what if we have ideas that we think are good? What if I want to challenge on my team? Be like, you you want a hard problem set? Like, here you go. And then they can tell me like that's dumb. But what kind of like where are you guys getting your ideas? I guess is the my question. Yeah, yeah. So that was a really interesting, uh, basically, negotiation. Like I said, the Air Force has a point of view and MIT has a point of view, and finding that like overlap in the Venn diagrams is, is actually a really interesting part of the relationship. Um, so the, the way we started was the Air Force provided like six high-level sort of areas we were interested in. One of them, for example, is like humanitarian assistance and disaster response. 
Um, there's another one, I think one of them was alternative navigations. That's where magnetic navigation came from. And so we basically gave them these like high level things we were interested in, and they came back to us with a bunch of, of uh, proposals. So I think it was 150 or so research proposals. And from there, it became like a negotiation for like a back and forth kind of discussion on on what things were both were most mutually advantageous to both MIT and the Air Force. Like what things were most interesting to MIT, most groundbreaking and hardest, and then to the Air Force, what things were most useful and most likely to, to actually deliver something to to an end user. So that was kind of the, the selection process. And we're going through right now kind of the discussions and like what does what does the the next phase look like? And it's probably too early to say, but we're hoping to scale. You know, I think this this has proven some some really great value and uh, we're hoping to, to scale a little bit bigger and take on some, some new projects potentially, maybe uh, expand the scope to, to incorporate uh, industry in addition to academia. Well, I know Bender and I are kind of a, a bad example because we've kind of spent more time in the innovation side than most, but we know a lot of people in the military, out of the military that are looking to, to tackle difficult problems. So I, I guarantee there's there's plenty more people out there trying to trying to help out in in ways they can. Uh, Gouge, uh, how would how would you say if somebody could wanted to reach out and either uh, MIT AI Accelerator all that stuff? How how would you want them to reach? Yeah, a couple out ways. Um, so our website is we we post all of our stuff on our website. So there's there's two of them. One is aia.mit.edu. Uh, the other Air Force one is aiaccelerator.af.mil. And then I'm on LinkedIn. Um, give you the username later and post it in the, the show notes maybe. And uh, just my MIT email is just uh, kmcalpin at mit.edu. So first initial, last name at mit.edu. Nice. Well, uh, Bender, anything before we get out of here? No, thanks for coming out, Gatch. That was awesome. We, I mean, we have, we always do this week. We have a good intro for an hour and then we have about a thousand more questions that we actually want yeah, to ask. Right. <laughs> so that's probably <laughs> what will happen after we're done recording. Yeah. The, well, uh, well, awesome. Well, for the uh, audience, because I uh, forget the admin almost every time, uh, thank you for listening. Please give us uh, five stars and uh, share to all the friends that uh, aren't already listening to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, let them know that we're out here and, uh, and that you're listening to us. And uh, donations are always open. Thank you to uh, our uh, Adamus Cyber, who was one of our previous uh, sponsors. Sponsors are always open as well. So uh, feel free to reach out at info at Kodiak Shack. Dot com, uh, if you would like to sponsor some episodes uh, as well. Gouge, Absolutely. thanks again for Thank being you. here. See ya. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.